All right, evening everybody. Um, my name is Ernestina Coast and I'm absolutely delighted uh, to welcome you uh, to this session with a suitably apocalyptic title, or one may say suitably tabloid title, we shall see, dependent upon our four speakers. I'm delighted to welcome you here on behalf of the LSE's Global Health Initiative. Um, if that's something you want to know a little bit more about and you're not aware of, then please talk to either of my colleagues down here in the front row at the end of the session and they will uh, connect you to the LSE's Global Health Initiative. Uh, just while I'm here with a short uh, advertising break, uh, on Thursday, as part of the Global Health Initiative, uh, we've got uh, an event on Ebola, which is a diplomat and a doctor uh, involved in working on the front line of Ebola. Uh, we'll be running an event here on Thursday evening, so please do Google it and, and come along if you're interested in Ebola type things. Oh, I also need to tell you, for those of you who are Twittering, uh, we, have a, we have a hashtag, so if you'd like to live tweet from the event, we'd be delighted. Uh, we've got an hour uh, for, this, for this session, and I'm delighted to uh, welcome our four presenters this evening. Um, we're explicitly looking at this issue of um, the so-called crisis of superbugs super um, from lots of different disciplinary um, perspectives. Uh, so we've got international development... Uh, represented by Ken Shadlin, uh, Global Politics, uh, Dr. Matthias Kunagotchibugi, um, Health Policy, uh, Michael Anderson, and uh, Catherine Wilkos, uh, who has worked as a nurse. And we're going to kick off with Catherine uh, talking about this issue from her perspective. Thanks very much. Thank you for the introduction. As she said, my name is Catherine, and I received my BSN from a school in Cleveland, Ohio called Case Western Reserve University. And I was asked to come here and speak today mostly to give you more of a very personal feel to what antibiotic resistance is doing to our world. And I'm going to start off by telling you that I became a nurse because I wanted to help people. And I wanted to really make a personal impact. And now I'm here at the LSE pursuing my master's degree in global health policy because I wanted to take that view and make it to a greater population for a greater good. And I think that the issue of antibiotic resistance is something that marries both of those things very well. It is not only a personal issue for someone who's suffering from it, but it is also a global issue and affects a great population. And I was pleased to be invited to speak. So. This is a photo of a debridement kit. A debridement kit is something that will be used on you if you have something wrong with your skin and there needs to be some tissue removed. Usually this tissue is dead or it is being removed because there is an infection. You never really want to see this anyway. That's just not a good look. It kind of scares you. But you really never want to see this, which looks like a lovely pearl necklace, and it is not. It is something quite more um, vicious than that. That is a string of antibiotic beads which was a medical device slash medicine that needed to be invented because infections in wounds were becoming too hard to treat with just regular antibiotics when they're given systematically either through taking a pill or through an IV or topically. And these now need to be inserted into an open wound that is infected and they can be meters long. I've literally made them in the operating theater meters long and then the skin is closed back up and they have to sit there and deliver antibiotics directly to the infection. So we're moving towards something really scary to the point where we're having to put in a medical device 
that is delivering antibiotics just to try and treat something that could have been treated previously in a different way. And now we have the issue of worldwide antibiotic overuse. And when you least expect it, you're a 16-year-old boy, and this is, these are all true stories. No patient information is actually being disclosed. Um, you're a 16-year-old boy on holiday with your family in India, and you have a cut on your leg. And you least expect it, your cut gets a little bit infected because of this little microorganism. And next thing you know, I'm standing over you telling you we're going to have to cut off your entire leg because there is nothing we can do because all of the antibiotics are completely, they, they are not going to work. Your strain has become too resistant and you have caught something very strange. Or there's this little friendly looking, sweet, innocent thing that is giving you a UTI. Should be fixed with just a regular dose of antibiotics. And next thing you know, you are in complete organ failure. And I am leaning over you telling you See, when you wake up, you'll have a new liver. And I don't want to be leaning over you, telling you that. I mean, it's, it's horrible to have to do this. And it is all because of, in, for, in my perspective, again, I'm only speaking from a medical perspective, not anything that has to do with livestock and so on and so forth, but because of the over-prescription of antibiotics. There are three ways that we, as medical professionals, prescribe antibiotics, and it can be preventative, either prior to surgery, um, targeted, which is after a culture of the bacteria has been taken from the source of infection and identified, and the ability to treat it is also identified. And there's blanket. And blanket treatment is definitely the main cause of antibiotic resistance. It's whenever you go into your doctor and you say, by the way, I feel sick, I have a sore throat, it looks like this, and the doctor goes, yes, dude, your symptoms look like you could have this, and you were just prescribed something right off the bat. Just a script is written, please take this, done. This can happen in a variety of different disease formats, but most sometimes, and part of the reason that we have these superbugs is because these antibiotics were prescribed incorrectly, and you are now taking a bacteria strain, and this bacteria is getting all of these things thrown at it that it should have never seen, and the ones that are surviving are basically building stone walls up around it, and that one that's producing, it's natural selection, um, pretty much. So they are developing resistance to antibiotics. And how do we fix this? Um, from a nursing perspective, it really needs to start with interdisciplinary action. This is something from all medical professionals up to anyone in a policy-making place. And it has to do with the action of the nurse administrating the drug, the pharmacist filling the script, the doctor prescribing it, the policymaker or the hospital administrator who is creating the um, protocols behind administration and what is allowed to be administered at what time. The second thing that needs, that we, all be, we all need to be working together in order to really cohesively deal with this because it is no longer just one person's problem. It is a whole big group of people's problem. And the second thing we need to be dealing with is stewardship, and I'm not talking about airplane services, <coughs> I am talking about governance. So being ethical in the way we are doing things. It's about balancing demand with different influences. So 
a patient comes to you and they are demanding this antibiotic. This antibiotic has to work. I'm sick. I have a runny nose. Give me an antibiotic. A problem with our world up until fairly recently was that they seemed harmless and a doctor would just write you a script and that would be it. Now we are seeing what that blanket treatment or that harmless blanket prescription is doing and we need to be acting with more stewardship with how antibiotics are prescribed specifically. And the glue that's going to hold all of this together is our lovely little friend, education. This, our um, <clears throat> advertisement, is from 1958. That really wasn't that long ago. And it is about a candy throat lozenge that has antibiotics in it that you could just go and pick up. And it's things like this that created a cultural norm around antibiotics that seem to be a cure-all. And now we as an entire interdisciplinary team need to be acting with stewardship in order to educate and create this change in cultural norm because we can't keep treating antibiotics like candy. Because I don't want to lean over you and tell you I'm replacing your liver because of a UTI. And education is going to happen both on the level of patient provider. So I will be telling you, please finish your entire course of antibiotics, which is part of the reason antibiotic resistance exists. I could give a whole talk on that, but it's going to be from just patient provider all the way up to policymaker and population. And that is my quick nursing perspective. Thank you. Great. Um, thanks for inviting me to speak here today. So my name is um, Michael Anderson. I'm a research officer in the Department of Health Policy. I'm also um, training to be a GP. Um, so I've got five minutes to speak to you about the governance and implementations of national AMR policy, which is quite challenging. But um, I'll start off with why is AMR an issue? Well, um, without, as already as, as Catherine has already mentioned, without working um, antibiotics, like most of um, a lot of what we do in the healthcare service wouldn't work. So surgery, chemotherapy, um, you know, obstetrics, like it all kind of modern medicine relies upon antibiotics, and they're already not working. Um, and the ECDC, which is the, the European Surveillance Organization, they did some modelling with. Uh, OECD looking at the health burden of AMR in Europe. Um, so the, the DALIs they lost, so disability adjusted life year, um, for infections with antimicrobial resistant bacteria, and then looked at the healthcare burden and compared it uh, between 2009 and 2013 across European countries, and then compared it to the health burden associated with influenza, TB, AIDS, um, healthcare associated infections, and all. Well, and more, and the cumulative health burden for infections of AMR is, is more than all of these combined. So the, the health burden is, is massive. Um, there's also a significant economic burden associated with AMR. So the hospital costs are significantly higher. You're more likely to be admitted to ITU, um, longer stays in hospital. Um, and then beyond that, the, the, one of the things I'll go on to talk about is AMR is not just an issue in the healthcare system, it's a wider issue for in animal and environmental health. And the only, if you're interested in AMR, I think the first place you should go to is the O'Neill Report, um, which is a great um, 
piece of work that was done um, a couple of years ago that involved some economic modelling, which the LSE actually helped with, um, which predicted that it, AMR would cost the global economy up to 100 trillion by 2050 if, um, uh, if not addressed. So, um, yeah, so a AMR is very challenging. So, um, what do countries decide to do to tackle it? Well, they came up with this idea of creating a national action plan, which is a bit of a catchy catchy name, um, but uh, the first ones kind of came around in the late 90s, so Sweden had one in 1998, the UK had the first one in 2000, and um, uh, the idea of a national action plan is that you try and get the different sectors working together to combat AMR, and that's human health, animal health, environmental health, and um, the, the, the WA, well, it's not just the global action plan on AMR, which involved the World Health Organization, the Organization for Animal Health, and the Food and Agricultural Organization, I think, um, said, basically said to all member states, you need to have a national action plan by 2017. And um, then there was a UN declaration in 2016 where um, everyone committed to coming up with a national action plan. And um, the problem is, though, it's quite easy to write a national action plan to combat AMR, you can tick that box, but um, implementing it is a completely different matter. And the UN has launched this interagency coordination group on AMR, and, and this is what the report that came out over the summer. So the greatest challenge is not writing a national action plan, but implementing it and demonstrating sustained action. And why is that difficult? Well, AMR is not just about prescriptions, it's, 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 and it's not just about hospitals. It's about how we manage waste. Um, there's, the countries now are looking at treating their, their water supply because there's consistently high levels of resistant bacteria in the irrigation system. Also, the majority of antimicrobials are consumed in, in animals. So Ch China and the US um, use huge amounts of antimicrobials for growth promotion purposes, even though there is zero evidence that this works um, because there's, there's, vi there's viable alternatives they could be using. And then the, the waste from the livestock then gets used and spread amongst uh, as, as fertilizer, and then you get resistant bacteria in plants, and then that goes into um, that drains into sewage and wastewater, which then it affects aquaculture. Uh, then it also affects the food that we end up eating, both plants and, and um, uh, meat. And then there's how we manage our own waste, how the pharmaceutical industry that manage antimicrobials, how they manage their waste. Um, so, it, and it affects many, many um, areas of society, as well as um, you know borders between countries and, and traveling between countries as well. So, um, you have to. There's literally every single country, there's a niche group of people that have to come together and write a national action plan and consult with a wide group of stakeholders to tackle that humongous problem. But broadly, um, the, the, the problem is, is that the, the, the myriad of incentives, the, the, um, the cultures in these um, sectors, or as it's say, the political economic features of animal health, human health, environmental health are completely different. And whilst... There was, there is a, some broad categories of actions that you can use to combat AMR that may have, um, they have different meanings across the different um, sectors. So regulation means the complete regulation to combat AMR means a completely different thing in the human health sector than the animal health sector. Same with stewardship as well. Like um, you know, you, with the livestock industry, you're having to deal with 
um, major industry that, that has been very successful at lobbying the US government to not ban the use of growth promotion, um, use of antimicrobials. Um, so the, the challenges are very diverse and mean different things in the different sectors. So what, is this, what has this meant? Well, let alone implementing a national action plan, um, even developing one is challenging enough. And this is from 2017. So the, the, those, the World Health Organization, the World Organization for Animal Health and the, the um, Food and Agricultural Organization, they, they monitor this, this progress by a self-assessment questionnaire. And if you ever, if you, it's actually really, it's quite fun to go on their website and play around with the different questions and see, like compare progress. You, they can lie as well. So that's, that's the other thing. Some, I, th I, I suspect some countries might be over, overestimating their, their, or under, probably overestimating their progress of this. But there are still, there's, it's, I guess one positive is there's only a few countries that don't have a national action plan. There's a few countries that just ignore the questionnaire. But, um, but there's still a few countries where it's under development. There's a few, so I don't know if anyone's Canadian here, but um, they just have a national action plan developed. I don't think that's true because I've seen their national action plan and they have, they have done something with it. But um, the last one, national action plan approved by government that reflects the global plan objectives and the operational plan and monitoring arrangements. And the last one, national AMR plan has funding sources identified as being implemented and has relevant sectors involved with a defined monitoring and evaluation process in place. So there's, there's only really what well, I think China's overestimating, because I've seen that one. But, um, <laughs> and I, the UK is definitely where I, I, they don't have all their funding sources identified, I don't think. They manage, I've, I've gone for the UK on a lot of detail, and, and they just expect the relevant ministries to implement a national action plan using their baseline budgets. So they don't really have a. So there's a bit of lying going on, but um, <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, so the, um, this is the important thing. So uh, the biggest challenge, I think, is what I've tried to emphasize with the previous picture is trying to coordinate between the sectors. And then also, if one sector doesn't do their job properly, then that creates an, a disincentive for the other sector to take their job seriously. So talking between human, animal, environmental health. Um, and this is the one I think you can see that the, the people are tr struggling with the most because there's a lot more orange and red. Um, and typically, the main response that countries have used to coordinate between the sectors is having a uh, multi-sectorial working group, which um, uh, is another catchy name. But um, yeah, so uh, it's still many, many countries are struggling to know the best way of, of doing that, like how frequently should they meet, who should be on it. Um, you know, uh, and then the last, the, what they're aiming for is an integrated approach used to implement the national AMR action plan. And there's still, um, you know, there's still there's still not many countries that are at that E. Um, but really, uh, I think I've overrun, so I'm sorry. But um, yeah, as I've as I've as I've kind of mentioned before, the reasons why it's so difficult to implement a national action plan is there's no clear mechanism for implementation or coordination. Um, it's meant to be that multi-sectoral working group, but there's a lot of inconsistencies. Um, the, the, the Department of Health Policy did a research project where we looked at eight in detail, and I think actually with this mechanism for coordination, 
Germany didn't have one. No, was it? Yeah, Germany didn't have one, and they just blatantly said, "Well, we don't need it because it doesn't it doesn't do anything. It's just for show." So it, there's still a lot of um, there's a lot of uncertainty about whether you know the right way of doing this. Uh, and then also, it, is it realistic to expect sort of developing countries to have the logistical, technical, and um, expertise to, to manage to implement a national action plan, including the surveillance capacity, which is essential to monitor and evaluate policies? And then also, you know, accessing enough resources to finance the different um, aspects of national action plan is also challenging. As I've said, UK, which likes to say that they're one of the best countries in tackling AMR and they're very proud about it, still, uh, they, they do not allocate earmark budgets to relevant activities. I think they, they still expect baseline budgets from the... So, for example, they, they just say to NHS England, use your budget to do this, um, rather than having earmarked um, funding allocations. So um, I don't know if we're doing questions at the end. Questions yeah? at the end. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. So I don't have slides, but I, I'll stand here so I get a chance to see you all better. So my name is Matthias Kunigaki-Bugi, um, and I'm looking at this from a, from an IR perspective, and I feel the need a little bit to justify why, on something that is clearly health-related and health policy-related, you might want to also hear from an IR perspective. So we, we heard about how scary antimicrobial resistance is, but you also saw from Michael's map, actually the, the map that Michael presented, that there are some countries that have pretty well-developed plans, okay? So you might think, well, it's scary, but you, know, you might be lucky enough to have the passport of one of those countries or have access to one of those countries. So you just go there and then no problem, you're safe, okay? Well, uh, it's not so easy because um, drug-resistant uh, bugs, unfortunately, cross borders as well. Not only people, but, you know, they cross borders as well, often with people, and they are not stopped at passport control, okay? So this is a problem, which is that even a country might have the perfect plan and implement it perfectly, it is still not safe from uh, importing resistance, okay? So, well, normally you say, well, we have a problem like that, so the government should do something about it. Uh, but the problem is that at the global level, we don't have a government, okay? So there is no global government can, can do a global action plan and implement it in the way that you expect from a national government. This is where IA comes in. So IA specializes in studying basically getting things done in some way to promote cooperation in the absence of a, of a global government. So cooperation might simply mean avoiding wars, okay? So that's the minimal definition of cooperation, and therefore, you know, people studying nuclear diplomacy between North Korea and the U.S., but cooperation also means to create a condition by which governments themselves can do the nice things that they're supposed to do in order to counter uh, resistance. Okay, so essentially, when we are looking about, you know, uh, um, action on uh, AMR at the, at the global level, we need to see uh, basically containment of resistance as a global public good, okay? So why is it a global public good? Well, first, I hope you don't need to be convinced that it's a good thing to contain resistance, okay? So I leave that uh, aside. Why is it public? So this is something that economists have defined. So public is when you have a good that is non-rival, meaning, you know, if I benefit from it, someone else is not going to be deprived. They can benefit as well. 
but perhaps more importantly, you cannot exclude people from benefiting it once it's there. Okay, so you create a good, then it is non-excludable. Everybody can consume uh, the good, and this creates problems for creating those goods. So this is something that uh, uh, economists have studied: when that good is only produced with some costs. And I think we need to be clear that containing MR has some costs. Some of them are essentially monetary costs. You need to pay for the information campaigns and education campaigns, okay? Somebody needs to pay for them. Uh, but also it has other kinds of costs. Uh, industries, when they no longer can use uh, antibiotics for, their, for, for cattle, for instance, you know, they become, in a way, less productive in a way. You might say they become healthier, but still, from a monetary perspective, this is a loss. It also could be political costs, okay? So you need to convince patients, doctors, that are used to give freely, you know, or more freely antibiotics. No, you cannot do it anymore. We are going now to check what you're doing, and this is something that can generate resistance. So when you have a good that is costly, but is also public, then you have uh, a likelihood of under, uh, under supply. Okay? So that's the expectation. You should have less containment than you would actually want in order to solve the problem. So, we don't have a global government, so what is the solution? Well, of course, it's international institutions. Okay? International institutions are meant to be a substitute for the global government that we don't have. Um, and, uh, you know, there are international institutions dealing with antimicrobial resistance. Uh, but IA is a little bit kind of uh, uh, cautious on that. So, why? Because what you want from an effective international institution, first you want it to be ambitious. So you want the international institutions to set some rules that actually address the problem and make governments and indirectly people do a lot to change their behavior in order to solve the problem. So ambition is one thing. The second one, you want to have uh, the institution to be consequential. So if people don't do what the rules are supposed to be, uh, this has consequences. Okay? It can be sanctioned somehow, okay? So enforceability is also something you want from international institution. The third is you want to have wide participation. There is no point in having something like, you know, uh, an institution dealing with antimicrobial, insist, uh, antimicrobial resistance if only 10 countries say, yes, we are going to do something about it, okay? So you want many more countries. You want to ideally have every country. So you want three things from international institutions. So Aya tells you, be careful because you might get at most two of them, okay? So if you have an ambitious set of goals which are very much enforceable, so there are kind of sanctions and consequences if you don't fulfill them, you're likely to decrease participation. Governments are going to shy away from signing up because they don't want to limit their autonomy, okay? They are jealous of their sovereignty. But on the other hand, if you have an international institution that is so unambitious that basically just tell government to do what they're already doing, you might have everybody, everybody signing up, but you know, that's not solving the problem. And uh, you, know, you might have a very ambitious goal, but no consequences for not pursuing it. Again, everybody might sign up, but the, clearly the solution is not uh, solved. So what is the upshot? So that you need to design an institution that is able to get a good balance between participation, ambition, and enforceability. So you don't want to make it more 
stringent, essentially, in terms of the sanctions for non-compliance, then strictly necessary to have both high ambitions and high participation. Okay, so this is a, a, a very uh, kind of general and perhaps abstract introduction to the question that uh, uh, we should be asking. So what kind of institution should be dealing with, uh, with antimicrobial uh, assistance? Okay, so some people think, well, you know, look at the environmental field. There are hundreds of international treaties. So why don't we just do a treaty on antimicrobial resistance? So something more than just, uh, you know, okay, that's what you should be doing, and then we monitor what you're doing. Uh, it could be a good idea. Some people have proposed that. So countries make uh, a commitment to do something about it. But it also it's a little bit risky for the reasons I said before. What if countries don't want to bind themselves? They don't want to relinquish their autonomy. You know, the trend is towards stressing national sovereignty. You know, against global governance. Uh, you know, so you might risk backfiring. And actually, nobody does uh, does does anything. So IA can, in a sense, contribute to designing institutions by looking exactly what kind of problem needs to be, uh, needs to be solved. So treaties have some advantages. i give you just a couple of examples. First, they have an international effect. Uh, you legalize an obligation to do something about resistance, uh, and then people or, or countries will not use, for instance, trade law from the World Trade Organization or preferential trade agreement to counter your policies. So this is very well known from the area of tobacco control. Countries have created the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control about tobacco policies. And then now this tobacco treaty is being used when producers of tobacco product try to challenge control uh, measures taken at the national level as violations of trade law. Okay, So we have various cases. You have... Uh, um, uh, flavoring, uh, anti-flavoring policies in Canada, plain packaging in Australia, where producers of tobacco, both companies and countries, have been trying to challenge those countries, saying, wait a second, that's actually in contravention with uh, trade law, and those governments have been able to say, look, there's actually a treaty on tobacco control, so we're just doing something that is relevant to that. You can see that also works at the domestic level. Okay, so when you have companies, tobacco companies, that try to fight challenges to control, then you know judges might be more likely to, uh, in a way, to support tobacco control measures because there is this, this international treaty. But this international treaty needs to be differentiated, I think, because for some issues here. Uh, the issue is not to continue to always police compliance with, uh, uh, with the obligations. Okay? So imagine you are a country that does an action plan, uh, and then, uh, in a way, no one else does anything. Okay? So that's not a good reason to be terribly ambitious, because you, know, you might be investing a lot of resources in doing something, and then you know, drug resistant bugs just come back in from, from your borders. Okay? But, however, think of a situation where most countries do, are doing something, okay? Imagine almost everyone is doing, every country is having a proper plan. So you would be very rational for a government saying, I have nothing to do with that, I don't want to do anything, if actually, you know, there is a serious contribution that your national action plan could be giving to solving, to solving the problem. Once you reach that stage, you don't need to send the police around every country to see whether they are doing something, because there is no incentive to free ride. Okay, that's, that's the idea. So, should we not have a treaty then? 
Well, that will be too soon because there are some aspects where uh, a treaty, a legal obligation, could actually be useful. And I think here I would highlight the financing. Okay, so one thing is to have a national action plan. The other thing is to help financing national action plan and implementation of countries that are less uh, uh, less wealthy, and they might have good reasons for you know, deciding that this is not their priority. They need to have more midwives. They don't, they don't need to have all this kind of uh, uh, surveillance systems for antimicrobial resistance. And here there is a strong incentive just to free ride and say, okay, it's a good idea to give them money, you do it. Okay, so I try to kind of uh, avoid paying for, uh, for the bill. So what is my conclusion? So these are two aspects of antimicrobial resistance that need to be addressed internationally, but they don't necessarily all require the same kind of design, institutional design, in order to be solved. Uh, and in a sense, I think the contribution for Maillard is precisely to show that this is, uh, in a way, can be, can be used in a, uh, in a more differentiated way. So what is being done at the moment, I think Michael has shown uh, the map that shows who is doing what. So what is the bet that the World Health Organization and people are taking at the moment? You basically publicize what countries say they're doing. Okay, So you put them on the website. You know, If you want to go on the website of the World Health Organization, uh, they even say, this is for increasing transparency, global uh, civil society organization, look what governments are saying they're doing, and then people say, they're lying, they're lying, and you know, there are people that I see saying, that's not true, and so on. So here the idea is that you can push government to do more simply with publicity without sanctions, fines, or you know, some kind of threats of expulsions from the World Health Organization or some uh, um, sanctions. So I stop here, but you, know, you wonder, is this, uh, 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 is this actually working? Is this kind of shaming mechanism, transparency and shaming mechanism working? And here my answer can be, uh, brief because uh, it's, I think, too soon to say. Thanks very much. Great. Um, I'm like Matthias. I'm going to speak from here, uh, but like Matthias, I'm um, without slides. I Thanks for um, being here and uh, for the organizers for including me. And it's an honor to follow these three presentations. I'm going to talk about two, two sets of issues related to this. Um, one is about the innovation challenges, and one is about use. And my comments will depart in some ways and build in some ways on what um, Catherine, Michael, and Matthias have spoken about. First, let me start with the innovation challenges, um, which is not something we've talked about, which is that we need new drugs. Um, it's not just that we're overusing the drugs that we have. We need new drugs to address AMR. And there's not enough investment in pharmaceuticals. Uh, this is clear. Everyone goes on and on about the importance of the need for new drugs to address um, sort of mutating bacteria, um, but few firms, particularly few uh, large pharmaceutical firms, are treating it as a priority. We can see this. I mean, the, the, the words aren't what matter. The actions are what matter. And you can look in the pipelines of, country, of firms, what they're producing and what they're researching, and there's just not a lot there. So nobody will deny that it's critically important, and nobody from a pharmaceutical firm will deny that it's critically important, and they'll all point to their discrete projects. But the data, it's, just, it's not a high priority. Um, we also need more and better diagnostic tests, precisely to avoid part of the misuse that uh, my colleague spoke about before, in which people mistake um, viral infections for bacterial infections. 
Now, why is innovation so poor in this area? Um, for those of us who sort of study drug development, it's obvious. For those people who don't study drug development, maybe it's less obvious. Um, the standard approach to drug development is that there's some long, complicated process of interaction between public sector researchers, whether they work in the public sector or they work at a university that receives funding from the public sector, and private sector firms who eventually take these drugs to market, which is a very expensive in procedure with lots of, um, so the research and development is very expensive, it's very time consuming, there's regulatory trials, you have regulatory hurdles you have to overcome. And the standard way that we rely on drug development is to try to recoup all of these costs by selling the drugs through the prices. Um, but the goal of creating new drugs for AMR is to have new drugs that we don't use. Um, and it's hard to stockpile drugs often because of the, sh the shelf life issues. Similarly with diagnostic tests, um, here these would be used, but they would basically, you'd want them to be used universally by, in every clinic, in every town, in every village, in every country in the world, and so they would basically need to be distributed um, for virtually nothing. So it's hard to incentivize innovation in the normal way that we're used to incentivizing innovation for products that are just not going to be used. That's the whole, the whole point is to create something new and then not use it, or to basically to give it away. So the normal mechanisms don't work well in this space. What many people have proposed, and the, uh, the, uh, what, what's common proposal here is sort of new mechanisms having to do with what we might call prizes, or prizes essentially, and saying, instead of you invest your time and your money in coming up with this new drug and then recoup your R&D costs through sales, is you come up with this drug, you get a prize. You have to give some number on it. It could be $10, it could be $10 million, it could be 10 gazillion dollars, wherever we think that prize is, and then you don't have to sell it because the drug, you've, you've invented it. Um, or you can have what are called advanced market commitments, which are functionally similar, where if you come up with it, we will buy it off you. Um, they're, they're, the prizes and, and AMCs are different, but for our, for our purposes, they're about the same. Um, some people refer to this whole universe of alternatives as delinkage, in which you're taking away the, you're, you're, think, you're linking, you're delinking the cost of R&D from the, the sale of the drug that you get on it. AMR is perfect for prizes or AMCs or what we're calling D-linkage more generally uh, because we know what we want. We're not relying on imagination. A lot of the drugs that come out on the market, no one sat back and said, you know, we need to have a new drug that, you know, addresses this particular thing. But somebody said, what, are, you know, what, what would happen if we could come up with a drug like this? And there's a lot of experimentation and a lot of risk taking, and you get this new drug that nobody really 15 years before thought actually we would even, we would even need to have. Um, everybody knows what this is, so we can be focused on it, and we're willing to pay a lot. Um, how exactly we might resource it all gets to some of Matthias's questions. You might need a treaty for um, resourcing it. But we're willing to pay a high price up front. So this, is the, this will have to be the way, if we ever get our new drugs, they're gonna come through some form of prizes or advanced market commitment. Um, but we don't have them yet. Use. Um, 
Catherine and Michael and Matthias, before me all spoke about use, I just want to make a couple of comments here. Um, if you look at sort of the way the WHO examines the use of antibiotics, they sort of, there's three different categories of antibiotics. They have sort of the first line and second line normal antibiotics that they call access. And there's another set of antibiotics that are supposed to be used only in more special conditions. They call those watch. And then third ones are basically try not to use them. Use them only in the last, last instance. They call those reserve. And it's nice because it comes out to aware. So it's a good campaign. Um, but when we talk about use of antibiotics, it's worth distinguishing among these three different types. The access ones versus the um, watch ones versus the reserve ones. And so it's not just how much, what countries are using, but which of these three that they're using. Because there's a significant amount of variation in that. For example, just to give one example here in the UK, I'll give a couple examples here in the UK. The UK uses a fair amount of antibiotics. Sort of, if you look at all the countries together, it's not at the bottom, it's not at the top either. Sort of normalized antibiotic use, normalized by some share of the population. But the UK uses very few of the reserve ones. So the UK looks good there. Um, other countries like Japan, Japan uses a lot less, or, Three quarters of the has a three quarter of the antibiotic use overall from the UK, but about four times as much of the reserve ones. So what we want to care about is not just what anti, how much antibiotics countries are using, but are they playing around with the are they using the ones that they shouldn't be using? To put it frankly, um, they shouldn't be using the reserve ones. And finally, I can't shut up without sort of making. A point that for me, as someone who studies developing countries, is obvious, but I, don't, I never hear anybody say, which is that we're not just worried about overuse, we're also worried about underuse. And by that I mean that there are a lot of people in the world that are suffering, and sometimes dying, from infections that are treatable. And they should be treated. And they're not treated because even the basic antibiotics are not available. It's not that they don't exist, it's that they're not available. There's a broader system of sort of, of poverty and healthcare infrastructure and access to basic medicines. It's not even that they're, very, they're, high, they're super expensive because they're protected by intellectual property rights. They're just cheap medicines that, are, that should be available, but they're not available because of really rotten healthcare infrastructures and, and high levels of poverty. And so underuse is a problem too. So I think the challenges here are very complex, as we know. We need new, we need new drugs and we're not sure how we're gonna get them. I mean, we know the mechanism we're gonna get them through prizes and AMCs, but that doesn't actually get them to us. Um, we need to monitor use. We need to monitor use about not just overall, but type of antibiotic that's being used. And we also need to keep an eye on the problem of underuse. Um, and that's, those are my points. Thank you. All right, thanks to our uh, four presenters who've ably uh, got us thinking about some very broad topics ranging from innovation to education to, to governance. Um, we'd like to throw the floor open now uh, to the audience, um, maybe take a couple of questions um, at a time. Um, there is a roving mic, but it is possible to, to share it if you don't need the roving mic, so if you want to have a... A try, sir, and if not, the mic can come yeah, to you. I think without a microphone it would be all right. Um, I'd be really curious to, to hear you elaborate a bit more on the links between the agriculture and the cattle industry and antibiotic resist uh, resistance. Um, I was really pleased to hear from Dr. Koenig um, about the uh, tobacco industry's involvement in the Global Treaty um, because the tobacco industry uh, was lobbying hardly, and I hate to use the L word, but they were lobbying really uh, 
really profusely, um, and I know that the WHO developed guidelines on inter um, intervention with the development of the FCTC, basically banning lobbying or involvement with any sort. And so I was really surprised to see that on the map there were some really heavy cattle producing countries and really heavy meat industry countries that were labeled as sort of green or labeled as sort of under the green category of actually adhering to standards in, in national policy. Um, and I think it's a really interesting intersection of where the, the food industry also has a part to play. So I'd just be really interested in hearing your thoughts a little bit on that. We'll take a couple of questions at a time. And there was another hand there. Um, well, thank you for this, first of all. Um, so I think that the, there's a really interesting link between gay subjects and kind of the environmental discussion that we're having, besides the link of like the causality link, that obviously there are other problems here. Um, in the environment side, it seems like we're building the treaties, we have kind of a, like a third party supervision, even though obviously there are countries building out of the treaty, so it's not going so well. But it seems like in this subject, there's something else going for it, which is it's health, so it's very close to home. But it doesn't seem like it's talked as much. Do we need extra visibility? Like, do we need, the, it, on the environmental side, we do see that there's more awareness from the population, and the population is actually more open to measures than what the governments are willing to make, which is a curious situation, but then we can blame lobbying. But if here it should be more effective. I see the population care more about this subject, and actually this would benefit not only the, the problem with the drugs, but also the climate change issue. So is this, like, could this be part of the solution? Okay, thank you. Let's start with those two questions, um, Matthias. Well, on the, on the national plans of uh, countries with uh, big cattle production, maybe Michael might be in a better position than I to, to answer, but in a sense this reports at the moment, this reporting system doesn't actually look at uh, uh, the quality of implementation. So it doesn't necessarily tell you whether the uh, producers on the ground uh, use less antibiotics for their for the products and so on. Uh, at the moment, the system is more about uh, surveillance, reporting, uh, having the plans in place, so know essentially what should be done rather than knowing that it has already been uh, been done. So I think that the pattern is not necessarily contradictory. Where you, when you have uh, apparently relatively good performance from countries where you expect uh, political. Uh, political opposition. It should also be said that those those scores aggregate various different things. So uh, you have uh, uh, you know human the human sector, you have the animal sector, but also the plant sector, you know, on which there is less to be to be done. But anyway, I, I fully agree with you that uh, the the problem of very strong interests opposing action is uh, is real. And maybe, in a sense, the uh, difficulty here is even high in the case of the tobacco companies, which can be counted more effectively, in a sense, uh, as damaging directly health, when you have uh, lots of livelihood at stake with an industry like uh, uh, you know, the agriculture, <coughs> then it becomes more, more tricky. Country progress database, like it is really good. You should, 
do I come and have a look at it? But there's about 40 questions on there. So that, that one was just to do with uh, whether they are using a multi-sectorial working group. There is one on animal health and, and stewardship, which I imagine, I'm not sure which country, if you're referring to China or, or the, the US, but um, they, 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 they might not score as well on that one. But in, in terms of um, the use of antimicrobials in livestock, we're so far away from in some countries because... In some countries, there's a battle just to even get them to stop using it for growth promotion purposes, let alone the practice of what they often use them for is if one animal gets sick in a herd, they just treat the whole herd with antibiotics. And it's, um, but then there's some countries that are, are doing really well, like um, the Netherlands, where they actually monitor antimicrobial use on farm level and they make sure that veterinarians only give it out with a prescription um, but um, yeah, it's the same old story. It's just like tobacco. It's having to in some of the larger country, some of the outside of Europe, the issue is overcoming the the livestock industry, and they do lobby to use antimicrobials and not to implement new regulation. So I'd like to push the panel to. Uh, would anybody like to respond to the the question about about the environment, about about the context? within which there seems to be greater visibility in, in some, some context. Catherine, would you like to respond? I think one of the most interesting things to especially compare this again to the tobacco industry is how they used to advertise cigarettes as healthy and good for you and positive and all of these things, which is still a cultural norm we're seeing being used in livestock antibiotic use. I mean, a lot of major producers will use it in a preventative measure. They even a cattle doesn't even have to be sick. It's to prevent <coughs> them from getting sick, which yeah, that's great, but the problem is is we as humans are consuming this meat that has the antibiotics that so on and so forth, food chain. Um, but I think it's just really interesting to see the cultural norms changing. I've seen it personally in hospital usage um, behind preventative use and how much that's decreased and different protocols for antisepsis. But I haven't. I can't speak on anything being seen being changed in livestock. But I, I think it's a really good point and something we should definitely pay attention to as we watch something that can really harm us and how it's approached from a major cultural perspective. There's another question at the back. Sorry, you do need to use the mic, so apologies. Gentleman in the blue jumper, and was there another hand? And then if you can take the mic after him. Sorry, where? Over there. Blue jumper? Um, I think in one of the slides you said that it would cost $100 trillion a year. I don't know if I mis misheard that or misread that. Um, <laughs> that's, a lot, that's a big number. Um, but yeah. could, as in the global impact? Or yeah, the global impact oh, of it's, it. Well, it's interesting you look at it from two, two sides. That is correct. It's $100 trillion, the global cost. But also the OECD did some economic modelling on how much it would cost to uh, implement like a basic package of which improved public awareness and stewardship and how, uh, infection prevention control measures. And it was um, like $2 per person per year. So that's how much it costs to treat it. And then that's the potential economic impact. So the majority of interventions to combat AMR in the healthcare sector save money. Okay. Um, and if it goes untreated, like the problem... What percentage of people, plants, and animals are going to get wiped out by 2050? <laughs> uh, would we, 
what percentage of people, plants, and animals? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, pretty dark, but... <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of echoing the... Well, it didn't calculate that, but the, the, <laughs> if you want to know about the... So typically, because it's not... Um, uh, it, no, it didn't calculate cub. But if you want to know the health, the health burden, the best, the best modelling has come... The most recent up-to-date modelling is that ACDC study. Um, which I think it said is something like, uh, I think I think it is responsible for thirty-three thousand deaths a year in Europe. Um, is what it said, if I remember correctly. Thank you. Another Thanks so much. The same Hi, I want to be a bit more positive about the role of um, lobbying and, com and combating this issue. Um, that's probably because I'm a lobbyist. Um, so I, I approach this from two different points of view. Number one is I, work, I lobby for a small biotech company who are trying to develop novel antibiotics. The research results are very good so far and come up against exactly the sorts of issues you pointed out. Um, you know, the, the, the investment isn't there. Um, we've seen all the big pharma companies are pulling out their investment in novel antibiotic research because uh, commercial returns aren't there, but also public grants. Um, you know, a lot of don't recognise things like intellectual property, which is where the value of investment lies. And also, um, uh, they're not, the grants aren't structured in the right way. You don't, not enough of them are getting through to antibiotic research. It's going elsewhere. Um, and the other question I wanted to, the, the other side I approached this on was I work with a company who do work in infection prevention control. And research in um, both the US and the UK has shown that the reality is Staff in hospitals don't wash their hands enough. It's, it's shocking. Um, you go to a hospital ward and it's going to say 99% hand hygiene compliance. The reason for that is, the way we monitor it is someone goes in and watches people wash their hands. Um, they might not necessarily be trained in what, they're, in what they're doing, what to look for. But also, if you're, wash, if you're being watched, then you're going to start washing your hands. It's, it's just human nature. Um, hand hygiene compliance rates are about 45%. What can we do to address that and make sure that we stop the spread of superbugs and healthcare infections right from the word go in hospitals. Right, two great points. Um, very quickly, I, I could see Catherine nodding vigorously uh, when it came to the quality of data, and I didn't know if anyone wanted to respond around the issue of the issue of the, the lobbying for good perspective. Um, it's hand washing alone. You're completely right. It is such a major influence in spreading of germs because one person gets this antibiotic-resistant bacteria, uh, okay, we're dealing with that. But then when it goes hospital-wide, really big problem. So one of, and it is also a complete change that I have seen happen in four years in one hospital that I worked in. I saw this change of this crackdown on hand washing, and you have to hand wash. And if you, the person who was the incognito hand wash person, who you knew who it was because they're on your unit all the time, um, if you were caught not washing your hands, there was you were reprimanded. There was there was action taken against you, and if you had so many things and blah 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 blah. But washing your hands and the spread that way is one of the things that it's controlling the spread. But when it comes to mutations of genes through overuse of, or mutations of genes expressed in bacteria through overuse of antibiotics is another thing that we are really having to combat that we can't change from just washing our hands. But the hand washing thing actually is a cultural change that I personally can say in my one hospital that I've worked in 
has changed a lot. And it's something that they're taking seriously now because they see the economic benefit in doing it. Does anyone want to respond to anything? Oh, on the lobbying, maybe. Okay, yes. I mean, even, even uh, dangerous lobbying can be good. I'm thinking, for instance, of the mistake done by pharmaceuticals when they sued the South African government over AIDS drugs, okay? So I think many people would think that this sort of... Uh, uh, kind of kind of behavior was actually quite good in uh, propelling the visibility on the issue, giving ammunition to AIDS uh, campaigners and so on, and in widening access to, to AIDS track in a sense paradoxically. So uh, a little bit of contention like you have in the environmental field, you know, which is much more contentious because you know there are more distributional struggles going on, could actually be a good thing. So maybe we should, hoping that there are big... Uh, uh, kind of uh, lobbying of uh, um, you know of uh, antibiotic using uh, uh, cattle industries because that would actually generate more public uh, uh, visibility and a backlash. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but I'm delighted by the fact that by being in a, an interdisciplinary social science setting, we're actually able to end an event by combining lobbying and hand washing. It's <laughs> <laughs> possibly almost the first. So thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Thank you to our uh, four presenters. Thank, thank you. Thank you.